0: Welcome to this 23rd episode of A Grand Tour with my great-great-granddad. My name is Ed Hill, and for those of you who are tuning in again, thanks very much for returning to uh, listen. I hope you enjoy this next episode. This one is actually, for me, quite significant, because it actually begins with William doing what he's being paid to do, which is drive a train in Italy. It seems to have taken a long time for us to get to this moment and seeing as I keep the beginning of every podcast mentioning this and explaining that's why he's travelling out to Italy to go and drive trains, finally we've got here after more than 20 episodes. So... <laughs> I mean, travel was a lot slower in those days. That's the whole point, almost. The introduction of the railways meant that uh, in not many more years' time, William would have been able to have got from the UK to Milan much quicker than he was in this time. But then, of course, he would have had the time to have seen all the sights and sounds that he talks about and reflects upon and then which I yap on about. So, swings and roundabouts, isn't it? But that is quite a distinctive or momentous moment from my point of view you know, being sort of interested in engineering to some degree and technological development. If you are listening for the first time, this podcast is based on journals written by my great-great-grandfather, William Mowbray Scott, in the 1840s about his travels around Europe and then the rest of the world as an engineer. Part of that being an engineer is being a train driver in Italy in the second oldest railway in Italy. So in this episode... It begins with him doing a trial of the steam loco that has been imported from the UK into Genoa. It's now travelled or been transported from Genoa to Milan and William's beginning a trial run of the engine in front of a Sounds like a large crowd of enthusiastic people. And then after that, the rest of the episode is really William talking about Monza. I mean, Monza, now it's most famous for, I suppose, the motor racing circuit there. It is a separate town from Milan, but it's not very far from Milan. I don't know. Would it be called a suburb of Milan? I don't know. I'll have to look on a map and get a bit more clarification. But obviously in William's time, it was a very separate suburban area. So William talks about it quite a lot in this episode, about the architecture and various things around it. And of course, because he spends two years in this bit of Italy working on the railway, going from Milan to Monza, driving the train, which I don't think he does all the time. I think after a while he starts delegating that to other people. But um he uh, gets to know Monza very well, and obviously he's quite keen on it as well. So this those two kind of elements, really. It starts with his fairly short account of what happens the first time he drives the train, and then him talking about the architectural and historical aspects of Monza. And that is really about it. Just so the usual things, this podcast is available on all podcast platforms that are out there, Spotify, Amazon Music, iTunes. Any way you want to you get your podcast, you can listen do it. It's on the Acast website as well. Acast are the ones that host it, so it's on their site. So uh, if you Google a grand tour with my great-great-granddad, you will see it and you can listen to it. I've also just done a YouTube video of explaining the background to the podcast. So if you want to watch that, if you go onto YouTube, and again, if you put into the search engine a grand tour of my great great granddad, you should see that episode come up of myself. You'll see my visage there, bespectacled, bearded explaining the background behind the podcast so it's actually quite similar to the introduction episode there's a podcast episode that's called the introduction to the ground tour most of the ground that's covered in that is also covered in this video but it does with the added aspects of visual imagery it does perhaps help strengthen the educational nature in which (laughs) this uh, podcast is meant to help people get an understanding of the period of the time and what was going on politically and to some degree technologically as well in 1840 so that's it there's the x account not twitter the x account which is scott of the historic and that is at 3g grand tour that's number three 3g grand tour there's a Mastodon account. There's a Facebook page, which is Grantor with my great-great-granddad. That's the Facebook page. Probably Twitter, sorry, X, Xer, <laughs> is the quickest way to engage with me. Any sort of feedback about the podcasts, if you should wish. I will be doing some more visual content. I'll probably do another video on YouTube. There'll probably be sort of thematic ones, rather than listening to the actual podcast. Which are also on YouTube, so you can listen to the podcast on YouTube as audio files as well, so again, if you Google it, they'll come up. but um yeah, I'm probably going to do a few more sort of thematic type videos just explaining elements of the history of the time when William is travelling and working. I hope you enjoy this episode for me, an interesting one, and I think it does give some nice color at the beginning, with William finally getting his hands on the steam locomotives, levers and pulleys to drive the train. Left to Genoa on the morning of the 6th of May, and arrived at Milan on the following evening. On the 13th, the first locomotive engine arrived at the city of Milan, and was followed from its entrance until its arrival at the station by an immense concourse of people. On the 30th, the second one arrived. June 20th. This day it was signalled by the starting of the first locomotive engine ever introduced into Italy. This engine was named the Lombarda, and was manufactured by Messrs Rennie of London. It had become pretty generally known in the city that this was the day appointed for the trial, and long before the hour of two, the time specified, not less than from twenty to 30,000 people had assembled at every point where it were possible to obtain a view of the railroad. Everything progressed according to my expectations, for to be alone with a heavy charge like this in a strange country and unable to speak the language is no enviable task. At a few minutes before two o'clock, I turned on the steam and the engine moved out of the station like a thing possessed of life and vitality amidst the cheers of the assembled thousands. Indeed, so loud were their vociferations as to completely drown the noise of the steam escaping from the engine. The road at that period was not finished more than a mile in length, so that I kept going and returning that distance for one hour and a half, until I was perfectly satisfied of the efficacy of the boiler and mechanism. Having done which, I ordered the fire to be drawn, and then allowed the water and steam to escape from the boiler through the cocks fixed for that purpose. A great number of the higher classes had been admitted to the station, and most of them, to satisfy their curiosity, got as near to the engine as they possibly could, little thinking what a threat there was in store for them. For the moment the cocks was opened, they was completely immersed in steam, and the immense noise terrified them to such a degree that they were tumbling about and over one another in all directions, amidst the jeers and laughter of those who had not been able to get access to the station yard. Right, so... Um... I know it's relatively early on reading from the journal, but I think this is a good place to stop, really, because it's the first account in which William describes actually working on the railway. So um, for me, it's quite a significant point. It's rather a nice passage as well, quite colourful, describing how all these people had turned out to see this trial taking place and how the higher members of society had got covered in steam (laughs) when they um, opened the cocks of the boiler... So it's a good point, I think, to say a few things that I do know about the railway and about William's involvement in it. Now, as I've said before, I wasn't quite sure, and in truth, I'm still not quite sure how William gets this job to be a railway engineer and train driver on this Italian railway. But there is a connection, and I wonder whether this is in some way related to it. In that the engines that he mentions that are the first ones exported out there are built by a company called J and G Rennie, and George Rennie, who was the partner in that company with his brother John, he was a well-known engineer of that period, like Stevenson. You know, not as famous as Stevenson, but uh, there's a huge list of engineers who suddenly come to prominence at this time, obviously. Probably Brunel and Stevenson are the ones we know best. But there's many like George Rennie who are innovating at this time with steam. And one of the roles George Rennie has early on in his career is as the supervisor or manager of looking after the machinery in the Royal Mint. Now, he finishes doing that job about 10 years before William was probably employed in the Mint, but certainly a lot of the machinery may well have been made by Jan Gi Rennie that was being used in the mint to make the coins. And these same engines that are being exported out to Italy are also made by Jan Gi Rennie and the Lombarda. Although sometimes I've heard it referred to as the Lombardier as well, the engine. So William calls it the Lombarda. Maybe I misread it. Maybe he wrote it wrong. I don't know. Some accounts call it the Lombardier. He calls it the Lombard. Anyway, this first train that he's driving that day was built by & G. Rennie, as he mentions, and they had this connection with the London Mint. So perhaps that is, in some ways, how William gets the job of being the engineer on the railway. He would have been using and maintaining and perhaps installing manufacturing equipment that was powered by steam built by a Jan G. Rennie, and so he was familiar with their. Mechanical devices, I suppose. Also, interestingly, they were a very varied firm, Jan G. Rennie. They didn't really, although they built railway locomotives, they built many, many industrial types of machinery, um, biscuit makers, (laughs) and uh, other steam driven apparatus. But they actually seem to be mainly famous for, and George particularly, for developing the screw propeller used in ships. As you may well know, Steam powered ships, most of them up to this point, had been paddle steamers, you know, with big paddles on the sides of the ship, turning the wheels and then driving the ships along the sea or lake, whatever they were floating on, driven by these side mounted steam paddles. But as time went by, people began to realize that this wasn't the most efficient way of driving a boat through the water. And the development of the steam-powered ship linked to a screw propeller, the sort of propeller that we're familiar with today that drives ships along, was found to be much, much more efficient and uh, powerful. In fact, I do remember there was a famous incident where they tied a propeller-driven ship together with a paddle steam ship. They tied them together basically and they sort of did a kind of tug of war type thing on the water and the screw propellered ship started to actually pull the paddle steamer backwards. So that kind of proved actually how much more efficient a screw propeller was compared to the paddle style type of propulsion. And George Rennie, this is one of the things that he pioneered and some of the first ships in the British Navy that were powered by propeller were built by J. G. Rennie so that seems to be their main or certainly george's main innovation his father as well was also a well-known engineer his father was scottish but he had been born and brought up in london as i say there is this connection with the mint where he was like the supervisor of the mint in london and it's possible there's some sort of connection there with william's former work working in the mint maybe he was well known to that company And maybe they said to him, look, we've got these engines that we're exporting out to Italy. You're the sort of chap we'd like to drive them for us and show these Italians how it's done. (laughs) So it seems quite coincidental, put it that way, that there's this connection there. From what I know, the actual initial engines, the Rennie built ones, weren't that reliable. And they, even during William's time, more engines are exported out there that were built by Stevenson but I don't really know anything about those at all. So it'd be nice to maybe find out what they were called. I have found a reference to engines named, I think one was called the Adder and uh, later engines, but they were exported, I think, at the same time as William was there. Sorry, I've gone on a bit there about that connection. But this railway in Milan, (laughs) it's rather grandly called, now I'll try and do this in the Italian pronunciation, hang on, it was called the, Ireneo privilegiata strada falata da Milano a Monza. Translated means the imperial and royal privileged railway from Milan to Monza. And by the word privilege, that basically means it's like the, the privilege was, if you like, the license. So the license to build the railway or the permission to build the railway had been actually made by Ferdinand I of Austria so he'd agreed that this line could be built going from Milan to Monza, and so that's why it's called the Imperial Royal Privilege Railway from Milan to Monza. (laughs) It's actually not very long, it's about eight miles long, 12.8 kilometers, and it's still there today, but it forms part of a a line that goes from Milan and then to Monza, and then it goes to the Alps. It's the milan Chiazzo line, but anyway, it goes up after going through to Monza, it carries on going sort of north and into the Alps. And it was some sort of unusual things about it. As William says, there was only a mile built when he's doing this first trial of the engine. And I thought more of it had been built by the time he got there, but obviously not. And it didn't have railway sleepers as were familiar with them, you know, with a, the railway track being laid on either cross. I mean, these days it's concrete, but originally it would have been wooden sleepers keeping the railway tracks apart. These were mounted on blocks of stone, and apparently every few yards, the kind of cross member, steel member, was put to join the blocks together to keep the, the gauge in line. And it's a fairly straight railway as well, looking at it on the map. It goes through another station called Sesto, which I think we'll learn about that more later when William talks about being on the railway, and... Apparently, Italy was a little bit slow compared to other countries in building its railways up until this point, and then after this railway was built, it really did, as in the UK, you know, I think they call it railway mania, where lots of railway lines started to be built. And when it first started, there were four trains running to and from Milan to Monza each day. That increased to six, and by the end of the first year, apparently, it had taken a about 150,000 passengers to and from Monza in that first year. And William actually does make reference to some of these figures in the journal, so we will come to those later on. So the railway track had been designed by an Italian engineer called Giello Sarti, but it was still this point in the development of railways where the expertise, particularly in steam locomotives, was very much still a British area of expertise. And so that's why a lot of these engines were being exported from the UK to particularly around Europe, it seems. But things that were less complicated, like the carriages and the railway lines themselves, tended to be engineered and built by the local companies and local railway engineers. And... Another quite interesting thing about this railway line, which I think is slightly strange because it does look like a very straight line, the signalling on it apparently at intermittent points. There were these sort of towers erected where there would be a man on the top who would signal with flags which train had set off and, you know, where they were making their way along the track. So, it seems a bit over the top of an eight mile bit of railway line that's almost virtually dead straight. But anyway, they had these signalling towers at intermittent points. I'm not quite sure how frequent they were along the line. I suppose you did in some way need to signal that a train was coming. I mean, I don't know if it was double track or not, or I, I'm not sure about that. But anyway, that is the Milan-Monza railway line. And as I have mentioned before, it wasn't quite the first railway in Italy. It's the first railway in northern Italy. There was one called the Naples to Portici line, that was further south that was actually it was only opened about a year earlier i've sort of dismissed it as being a bit of a vanity project by some duke down there who wanted to go from his palace to the beach I've been a bit unkind there I think it was a bit more of a uh, practical kind of transport solution than that but certainly I think the Milan-Monza railway demonstrated that this was attractive to passengers. and considering it took 150,000 its first year you know people began to realise I suppose in Italy just how valuable this type of new transportation was. So that's about it to say about the railway Of course, we'll be touching on it later on throughout the podcast when William makes reference to it and various things. Uh, As I say, it's mainly the incidents that happen on it because this is a real revolutionary technology. And as you can tell by the numbers of people he says came out to see this first engine being driven by William. It was fascinating to people that hadn't seen this sort of technology before in Italy. So it really was something very new to them. I did like that little description uh, for his no light task. I think he said something along those lines. No light charge to be involved in this endeavour and not being able to speak the language. So I remember he was a little bit nervous <laughs> to see the thing go. But it appears to have been a fairly successful trial by the sounds of it. At least it managed to go back and forth along this one mile of track several times successfully. 23rd. Monza. This day it was the festival of St Gerardo at Monza, and was also the day of my first visit to the city, and I may as well endeavour to give an account of what has attracted my attention in that ancient city. Monza is situated about 10 miles from Milan, and contains a population of 9,000 inhabitants. It covers a considerable space of ground, on account of there being a number of gardens interspersed amongst the houses. The river Lambro flows through the town, which though a stream of some size is not navigable, but being very rapid in its course, it gives a motion to a great number of mills of various descriptions, and some of those, especially the corn mills, are of the most primitive kind. On entering the city, the first object that attracted my attention was the cathedral, said to be the oldest in all Italy, and certainly from its style of architecture it appears to be a building of very remote origin. The west front is of black and white marble, alternately. The principal entrance is a receding arch, and is exceedingly rich in ornament. The tracery of the windows in this front are also very fine, but I am at the same time inclined to think that this is part of the building that has not been erected more than three centuries, being quite different to any other part of the structure. On the left-hand corner rises a lofty campanile or bell tower, containing an excellent peal of ten bells, and the only ones I saw in that country that are hung upon wheels after the English manor. There is also an excellent clock in the tower, which by an inscription upon it was erected as recently as 1816. The east end of the building is of red brick, with stone mouldings, and the carved brickwork is of the most superior kind. Wreaths of flowers and foliage etc. in the greatest abundance. The interior of the cathedral is low and dark, the windows being extremely small and the mullions of a large size. Round the side aisles of the nave ranged a great number of small chapels dedicated to the various saints of the Romish calendar. The high altar is a tolerable piece of workmanship and that of the Virgin Mary is placed in a parallel line with it. The walls that surrounded the last mentioned altars are painted in fresco, apparently of very remote date by the stiffness of the figures, which are exceedingly numerous but I was never able to make out the objects, or yet obtain any information upon that point. Popes, bishops, priests, warriors, and no lack of ladies' fare appear, as it were, in one mass. I have at different times spent several hours in endeavouring to decipher them, but have always been obliged to abandon the task without coming to any satisfactory conclusion upon that subject. The Cathedral of Monza was formerly very rich in gold and silver ornaments, and sacred relics, But Napoleon, thinking the former would be of much more service to the people at large by their being allowed the privilege of handling them, as well as seeing those rich treasures, had the greater part of them converted into forty and twenty franc pieces and other coins. And it is more than probable that during my residence in that country that some of those identical ornaments in that new shape have passed through my hands." I scarcely know how to account for it, but at that time I certainly preferred those coins bearing the impress of the great emperor to any other in circulation there. But the principal object for which this cathedral is now famed is the celebrated iron crown of the Lombards. This crown is of a round shape, without any bow over the head, it being a mere band or coronet of gold, richly set with precious stones, and inside of it is a small ring of iron, said to be made from the nails of the cross on which the Saviour suffered. This crown decorated the brows of Agulphus, I think that's Agiluf, who was around from 555 to 616, the chosen husband of Theodor Linda, the Queen of the Lombards, and also those of Charlemagne and Napoleon. And in 1838, Ferdinand, present Emperor of Austria, was crowned with it in the Cathedral of Milan. The cloisters of this cathedral are on the north side, and cover a considerable space of ground, and in different parts of them are some very ancient and curious monuments, dedicated not only to the dignitaries of the church, but also to the eminent laymen. On leaving the cathedral and entering the Piazza Vertsova, which is now the Piazza Roma, or Vegetable Market, I was much struck with a building standing in the centre of the space, with a lofty tower and a spar at one end, and all open below but of two storeys in height, being built upon arches. The staircase to the upper part being in the tower, and the lower part is at present used as a market. I have since made many inquiries as to the original designation of this edifice, but all traces of its origin and the date of its erection appear to be lost, even to the inhabitants themselves. The most probable conjecture is, and to which I am inclined to give the most credit, that at some early period of the Italian republics it was built, the lower part for an exchange and the upper for a town hall or place of public meeting. At the east end and projecting from the wall is a covered tribune or pulpit capable of containing four or five persons so they might address a large assemblage of the people standing on the wide space in front. This tribune is of marble and finely executed being covered with beautiful basso reliefs. It is on a level with the floor of the upper story and is entered from the apartment. In the tower is an ancient clock and two bells. This is a building that would afford ample gratification to the lover of antiquarian research. Right, so I'm going to stop at this point to say a few words about the various monuments that William's describing here in Monza. Firstly, Monza Cathedral, rather like the cathedral in Genoa, on the western front or main entrance to it, the facade is this combination of black and white or I think in this case it might be very dark green marble. Certainly from a distance it appears almost like black and white strata, one in top of the other. And as I say, it's kind of almost like a licorice all sort of thing. But the church at Monza, which is dedicated to John the Baptist, was in its particular incarnation as it is now, was built around 1300. But its history as a religious site goes back a lot further than this. It's quite impressive from the front actually looking at it. I must say it does look quite magnificent in a way with these strata marble facade and the carving and then, as William mentions, this big bell tower next to it with a large clock as well. In the inside, I think it's very noticeable that these frescoes that William mentions that are on the walls are very, very numerous and uh, they're in the ceiling and they're in the side aisles and... It's very, very striking, I think, from the inside that you see these frescoes that were painted by various artists over the years. And I think some of those dating back very, very far. So the provenance of them isn't that clear. Just briefly to explain, because William mentions a, a little bit later on, this church or the originally the site of the church and having a church there was meant to have been instigated by this Theo. Delinda, who was known as the Queen of the Lombards. Now, we're going well back into medieval history here. So the Lombards, and obviously this is why this region of Italy was called Lombardy-Venetia, the Lombards were a Germanic tribe who conquered this part of northern Italy from about 550 to about 770, roughly. So they became the rulers of this particular part of Italy, and uh, I imagine quite a lot of the population I imagine is Lombardian as well. Um, Anyway Theodolinda she was quite a powerful woman in the medieval world because she was regent to her son so she was married it was actually a second marriage to this king called Agaluf and when he died and his son took over because he was still very young Theodolinda was made regent or queen and Sounds like she was quite an important sort of operator in medieval Italy at this time, really. So um, she was quite powerful and she had the idea of instigating having a church built on this site. And this really comes again then round to, as William mentions, the most famous relic in this cathedral, which is still kept there now, which is called the Iron Crown, the Iron Crown of the Lombards. It's a quite small crown and there's some discussion as to whether it may have even at one time been a kind of armband or it was either that or it was more of a decorative type of crown that would have been suspended above an altar but it wasn't a crown that would be actually worn on someone's head. But the legend behind it is that it's called the iron crown because there's a ring of iron on the inside of it that is said to have been made from the nails of the cross on which Jesus was crucified. Now, with a lot of these things, that's actually proven not to be the case because it actually turns out that this ring, this band in the inside of it, quite thin band, it's only about a centimetre in width, is actually silver. But attached to that on the outside are six bigger gold sections beaten out and then there are mounted on those gold sections various gems and jewels So it looks pretty impressive as a crown, albeit slightly on the small side. (laughs) Kind of kids' party crown size, I, I would say, rather than an adult crown. But it's got a very convoluted history. But essentially we could say that this crown over the years symbolically became the crown with which Italian kings were coronated with this crown. So part of the ceremony of them being crowned would be wearing this crown. Theolinda I think is said maybe have to worn it or at least her husband did and then Charlemagne did and then various other people down the years who were crowned in this region of Italy and perhaps not surprisingly one of the later people to use it as a crown was Napoleon <laughs> in 18 whenever it was I think it's 1805 I can't remember anyway when he decided to declare himself Emperor of Italy He decided to have a big ceremony in Milan Cathedral and he, as part of that ceremony, the Iron Crown of Lombardy was used as the crown that was put on his head to declare him Emperor of Italy or King of Italy. I can't remember now which one it is, King or Emperor, one of the two. He's actually said to have taken the crown himself and placed it on his own head. And he's then said... the famous lombardian words apparently which i will say in italian dio mi la data voe la toca translated that means god gives it to me beware whoever touches it so in typical understated style there <laughs> napoleon crowned himself with this iron crown of the lombardians to signify the lineage of his taking over power of this northern part of Italy or the Kingdom of Italy as he called it. Basically the Kingdom of Italy was the bit of Italy that Napoleon kind of created and ruled. He won lots of battles with various other states in that area and united it all under one thing called the Kingdom of Italy which was the north part of Italy and Lombardy-Venetia was part of that. As ever, not shy coming forward. (laughs) At no point do you think he ever would have said to to some of his advisors or or friends, guys, you know, the whole uh, crown emperor thing, you know, uh, King of Italy, a bit too much, is it? (laughs) Oh, no, no, no. No, I didn't think so. No, no one's going to mind, are they? No, no. (laughs) Just moving on to this building that he describes at the end of this section, which he's not sure about, that he describes as being built on pillars or built on stilts. That's called the Orangario. And again, that was built in about the 13th century. That word is a Lombardian word, a Lombardian Italian word. It just means meeting place. So essentially, it was the town hall. And indeed, at one end of it, there's a little balcony where the area's rulers and noblemen and dignitary when a law was passed would come out onto this little balcony pronounce it to the assembled throng that some new edict or whatever had been ruled and they now had to obey that law or whatever it might be so it's basically just the word for a town hall or meeting place and there's not a huge amount known about its origins other than it was thought to have been built by the Visconti one well, of the Dukes of Visconti in that time And there's some sort of argument that it was placed quite close to the cathedral in a demonstration of civic power compared to church power. And there's obviously a little bit of rivalry. And I suppose there's always been down the years a kind of element of competition between what you might call religious power and civic power or governmental power, I suppose. And there's this argument that it was placed quite close to the Duomo or cathedral of Monza, almost deliberately, to make a statement that there was just as much power amongst the civic people as there was amongst the religious ones. I suppose Iron Crown of Lombardy. They've done some scientific research into it because this band of iron on which the golden exterior bits are mounted was uh, never said to have rusted, and uh, they said, "Oh, you know, it's kind of some sort of religious significance to this." but they subsequently discovered after doing proper tests on it that it's actually silver. And we're like with a lot of these things, it's over the years been added to, altered, changed. There's some suggestions actually that the crown at one time was bigger and that two sections, two gold exterior sections got lost and that's now why it's smaller than it originally was. But I don't know, I think this idea that it was more of a symbolic crown that would have been hung above an altar seems to me more realistic because it looks like other ones that were made for that purpose they then usually had sort of things below suspended below them <laughs> a bit like a blue peter <laughs> advent crown that they used to make out of tinsel and coat hangers every year <laughs> and then hang a few baubles off it <laughs> For those unfamiliar with the programme Blue Peter, it's a children's television programme in which often they would invite children to join them in making various fantastic arts and crafts, usually out of crappy bits of old cardboard and anything else that was like to hand and lots of sellotape and glue. I would say the Iron Crown of the Lombards or the Lombardian Crown of the Irons, <laughs> whatever it is, it's a bit more impressive than that. I think the interior, I've got to say, with all these frescoes and the numerous figures that are painted, a lot of them, there's a chapel dedicated to Theo delinda, and that apparently depicts sort of lots of moments out of her life. But they certainly look very impressive. So um, if you're ever in Monza, I would say going to the cathedral would be worth a visit. Royal Palace, the Windsor Castle of the Lombardy-Venetian Kingdom, is situated at a short distance from the city and is approached from the city of Milan by a noble avenue of stately trees and of four miles in length. It stands on one side of a park 14 miles in circumference. This palace owes all its beauty to the taste of the Viceroy, Eugène Bahane, who loved to retire here as a refuge from the cares of state and where he was often visited by his father-in-law the Emperor Napoleon. He had the extensive gardens and pleasure grounds laid out after the English manner, and there certainly is no place in Italy that I have ever seen that reminded me so much of England as it did. The majestic and extensive woods, the rustic temples, the delightful murmuring waterfalls, and the extensive lakes on whose placid bosoms float a vast number of stately swans and a variety of other waterfowl. In front of the palace, At a distance, perhaps a quarter of a mile, a very large sheet of water stretches across the lawn. To the left, a footpath bordered by flowers and shrubs winds amongst stately pines, and you see the water falling over the rocks in all directions, and in one place a path leads directly under a large cascade. Having got through this wood, you behold a smaller lake of a circular form, and beyond it, on a green knoll, a beautiful little temple. On one side of this lake appears a large cave, and in front on the surface of the water is a finely executed piece of sculpture, representing Neptune in his chariot, drawn by sea horses. At a short distance from this are some ancient ruins, and a very lofty circular tower, the top of which is level and surrounded by a battlement. And this commands a most extensive and delightful prospect, the city of Milan on one side, the town and ancient castle of Bergamo on the other. noblemen's villas, gardens, orchards, vineyards, cornfields, little villages and their churches, the park itself here, a small lake embosomed in a wood, there a verdant lawn, the palace and its gardens, the river Lambro winding like a silver thread across the plain. The view, only bounded by the mountains of Switzerland and the Tyrol, presents a scene that the visitor gazes on with pleasure and leaves with regret. This sweet spot is always open to the public, and on the day of my visit it was thronged with an immense number of well-dressed people. I then retraced my steps to the town and to the church, or rather churches, of San Gerardo, in whose honour the festival of the day was being held, and which only takes place once in 100 years. The original church dedicated to the saint, who was a native of Monza, is a very small, low, dark edifice, but they were at that time building a new and much larger edifice over the other, but it was not then covered in. I passed into the new part, of course, before I could get into the old one. At the door stood several priests with large pewter dishes, collecting the arms of the Benevolent to aid in finishing the structure. And at a small table sat one of those great fat lazy fellows called monks or friars, selling little pitches, strings of beads, small crosses, etc., that had been dipped in the holy well of the blessed San Gerardo and also sealed papers, which I was given to understand were indulgences or pardons for sins previous to commitment. From this sight I turned with no small disgust, and quickly moved to another part of the town. There had been a grand procession of the priesthood in the morning from the cathedral of the Church of San Girardo, similar to the Corpus Domini in Milan, which I shall endeavour to describe hereafter, but I did not arrive soon enough to witness it. The streets were covered in many places with white and red cloth and gay festoons across them at intervals. The houses and the balconies were hung with rich tapestry and paintings so that the general effect was very good but at the same time smacking more of the theatrical representation than the religion of the meek and lowly Jesus. Especially when the exhibition of Punchinello so that's Mr Punch, Punch and Judy show especially when the exhibition of Punchinello and other shows were collecting large audiences in different directions the Piazza Mercato is a fine large square of regular dimensions, on one side of which is the Bishop's College, a plain though noble and extensive edifice, and the master of tutors, which are celebrated for their learning and erudition, some of the most famous preachers of the Romist church having been educated here. At one end of the square is a theatre, a commodious and respectable place, and generally filled with large audiences to witness its representations of the opera, light comedy and ballet for the Lombardians are, to all intents and purposes, a play-going people. Most of the hotels and inns are in the vicinity of this square, and the post office is at the corner of a short street about 50 yards from it. In the Corsa di Porta Milano is a small and ancient church, the front of red brick, and I have many times stood and gazed with utmost delight at the skill, the time and patience that have been bestowed on its elegant and elaborate decoration." flowers, foliage, birds and animals, in the greatest profusion. The tracery of the windows, too, are as beautiful in design as they are delicate in execution, and all executed of the same material. A finely executed statue of the Virgin and Child occupies a niche over the entrance but the barbarous vandals of a later day have placed on each side two grim-looking old bishops with their mitres and crosses that entirely spoil the whole, and change the scene from one of admiration to that of complete burlesque. Verily, this is proof that, from the sublime to the ridiculous, there is but one step. There was also in former days situated close to the entrance into the city from Milan a large and strong fortress, but it had long suffered to fall into decay, and soon after my arrival in that country had totally disappeared, the old castle of Theolinda and Agilolf, of the Republic and of the Visconti, the stronghold of war of rapine that's another word for plunder and oppression, has given way to the quite different and more peaceful pursuits where the war-horse poured the ground and the chain-mailed warrior trod with haughty step now passes the mercury of modern days and at a speed the believers in the ancient mythology never dreamed of. In fact, to drop all metaphor, the site of the castle is now the railroad station. Those of its walls that were standing in the early part of the year 1840 were levelled with the ground to their very foundations, and also dug from the bowels of the earth, and their materials converted into ballast for the road, over which pass those harbingers of a highly advanced civilization by the facilities they give of a more increased and rapid communication, and rescuing the old city of Monza from being the most silent and deserted city of the Lombards, as the talented Countess of Blessington called it a few years previous, into a busy, bustling place, causing its streets, especially on the Sunday, to be crowded by well-dressed people, its omnibuses to the neighbouring villages and the coaches Como, Lecco, and Bergamo, and bringing the two cities to twenty minutes' distance although I've done it in 11, that before the opening of the railway, in all their rumbling veturas that's an Italian style of coach, generally occupied half a day. Okay, I'm going to stop here to discuss a couple of things that have been mentioned. Just at the end there, William mentioned the talented Lady Blessington. Her name is actually Marguerite Blessington, but... Lady Blessington became a kind of well-known literary figure in London society around that time. The most famous thing that she wrote was a thing called Conversations with Lord Byron because when she herself was doing a grand tour a few years earlier, she met Lord Byron and she wrote this book as a consequence of her conversations with him, which became a bit of a literary success at the time. She did have this rather convoluted family life. She was Irish and uh, she met the first Earl of Blessington who was a soldier and um, they got married, although he was seven years older than her and he'd already had, I think it's four children. But then on their grand tour, they met a rather dandy gentleman called the Count d'Orsay, or Alfred d'Orsay. He was a French nobleman dandy raconteur whatever you want to call it and they became very close both her uh, marguerite and uh, her husband charles became quite close to this count D'Orsay, and he returned to london where he became a bit of a literary ficker as well so there's some suggestion that there was a bit of a i mean he's described as became intimate <laughs> with lady blessington but i think If he did, then her husband probably knew about it too. It's all very convoluted, you know. How much actual bed-hopping was going on, I don't really know, because also some describe him as being a bit effeminate as well. And they say that he was equally, this is Count Dosset, was equally infatuated by the First Earl as well. So who knows? I don't know. But I think the important thing to say is that basically she was quite a well-known literary figure. She became a columnist. As well, in uh, one of the journals that Dickens wrote for. She was a friend of Dickens, and in fact, lots of people would come to their home in London, which apparently was on the site at the time of where the Royal Albert Hall is now, and it became quite a hotbed of literary discussion and artiness and avant garde, shall we say, bohemian behaviour. And uh, they were, to a certain degree, lauded in the country at that time for their. um, literary and other exploits, artistic exploits as well, because Count D'Orsay was meant to be an artist and how good he was I don't know, but after her husband, the First Earl died, they moved to Paris her and D'Orsay, and lived together there until she died she was said to be very beautiful and a, a great wit, so that's basically her. So the next thing I'm going to discuss is the Royal Palace of Monza, or Royal Villa of Monza which um, William described at the beginning of this section. It's a very large palace. I call it a villa but it's a huge palace and uh, it was built around 1780 by the Austrian royalty who were in charge of this part of Italy during that period. As you may begin to realise the influence of Austria over this bit of northern Italy waxed and waned depending with the arrival of various revolutions, and uh, then people like Napoleon. So it goes back and forth with Austria being in sometimes in charge and sometimes the local people being in charge and sometimes dictated like Napoleon being in charge. But anyway, this was when this royal villa was built in 1780. And uh, apparently, to this day, it's got one of the largest botanical gardens or parks in Europe. And uh, the wall is meant to be... 14 kilometres round, apparently. That was um, erected at the time of Eugène de Behernier, who, as we've mentioned before, was Napoleon's stepson. He was in charge of Italy for quite a long time at Napoleon's behest, and uh, Napoleon would visit him at this palace, and apparently he did much to add to it and improve on it while he was in charge there. And this was around about the 1804 to 1808 period. And it's a very large palace. He apparently built a theatre there as well. And it's been owned by various royal members, either Austrian or Italian, down the years. After the war, it became a government building. It was in quite a lot of decay by the end of the 20th century. And apparently in 2012, there was a major renovation works were carried out there. And now it's been restored to its magnificence. So you can certainly go there. It sounds like it would be an interesting place to go with the gardens particularly. They sound very interesting, which obviously they impressed William as well, as he mentioned. Again, probably worth a visit if you're down Monza Way. Now, the next thing I'm going to mention briefly is this church of San Gerardo, the church of San Gerardo al Corpo, which is where his... uh, meant to be entombed which william discusses saint gerardo who he mentions a couple of times here was most famous for founding a hospital in the city of monza or the town of monza which lasted for many hundreds of years looking after the ill and sick people of the town and area so that's mainly what he is famous for and venerated for he's said to have performed a miracle where um One day, the River Lambro was flooding and uh, he laid down his cloak and walked across the River Lambro as it was raging away and went to the entrance of his hospital and forbade the water to enter into the hospital, which it duly did. So that's uh, one of the miracles he's known for. And another one is um, juicing a bowl of cherries to give to someone. But this was right in the middle of winter. I mean, obviously there wouldn't really be any cherries around. Not the biggest miracle I could have thought of, but there we are. As miracles go, you've you've got your big ones <laughs> and your small ones, and chap. So, you know. Still a miracle, isn't it? Isn't it a miracle? You got these cherries, all no, nice, aren't they? <laughs> so essentially he's known for um this setting up of this hospital basically in the area and it's much venerated for his caring in regards to that and uh, the church that William goes into it's interesting because he's talking about it just as it was undergoing a major refurbishment or almost rebuilding as he describes going through the outer entrance and then to the inner bit they kept the inside of the church as it had been venerating Saint gerardo but then the front of it is very much a very big neoclassical building the great big columns and a dome and all that so that was obviously what was being built at the time william went to visit it and that's what you would see if you went there now i think it's quite interesting this point william mentions the lazy monks again who were <laughs> he really has this thing against monks and friars and things like that who are uh asking for money of the uh, worshippers to pay towards this refurbishment of this church (laughs) i don't know what it is i think it is this contrast between them being rather i think he was called some fat lazy monks doesn't he it's the fatness the laziness (laughs) and um, the lack of uh, shame i suppose about taking money (laughs) from probably The poor around them are much, much poorer and starving to build these magnificent buildings. I don't know. There's hypocrisy everywhere, isn't there? Anyway, that's this Church of San Gerardo El Corpo. There are other churches dedicated to Saint Gerardo. Gerardo de Tenturi is his actual name. There are other churches in Monza dedicated to him, but I think this is obviously the main one because it's where his remains are housed. So the last monumental building I'm going to talk about is this church in the centre of Monza that's got this rather impressive brickwork that um, William mentions. It's the Church of Santa Maria in Strada, or the Chiesa di Santa Maria Strada. I must say, it's quite distinctive. It's got this very ornate brickwork, arches, lots of decorative bricks and terracotta mouldings of plants and uh, various things so I think that's obviously why William likes it so much he mentions that as it does now it has this sculpture of the Virgin Mary with the baby Jesus below the very top pediment of the entrance and in his description he says then there were two other sculptures of Bishop placed either side of it and he describes it as ruining the appearance as he says going from the sublime to the ridiculous I think they were then later removed because they're not there now and this church did have a big refurbishment in the 1870s so I suspect maybe at that time these sculptures that he said obviously had been added ruining it were then taken away again because they're not there now I wouldn't say there's an enormous amount so bad it other than it's you know quite distinctive with this very nice brickwork which makes it stand out, I suppose, from uh, some of the other churches in this area where a lot of them are made with marble. So perhaps that's another reason why it uh, struck William's attention so much. I mean, there are really, when you look at the brickwork on the front, particularly on the sort of rosetta bit, there really is very intricate bricks that have been made and moulded. The beginning of the construction of this church was said to be done by the franciscan friars around about 1357 and then as with all these religious buildings it's a long period of being completed and then improvements and things added to it afterwards so if you're in monza you could have a quick wander into the church of santa maria in strada chiesa di santa maria strada oh italiano excelente There we are. It's getting better all the time, isn't it? (laughs) So I'm stopping at this point. Because I think it's really the best point in the journal at which to stop before the next episode, and I want to try and keep it under an hour as well, which is uh, almost my intention if I can. I'd like to keep it shorter than that, ideally, but this one's had rather a lot of content in it that's meant it's stretched on at the beginning it was a bit dominated by the railway extract and the steam train driving but i wanted to say as much as i could at that point about what i know about the railway which isn't a huge amount hopefully that will give you some enlightenment about what it was like at that time for william undertaking this job which understandably you know he does mention it there that i don't know how good his italian gets by the end of the two years But certainly at this point, he wouldn't have known hardly any. And, you know, it is quite a big deal having to be the train driver of this very new technology to all the local people there in front of a crowd of about, as he says, 30,000 people who've all come out to see it. So no wonder he was a bit nervous. (laughs) And uh, I don't know, you know, what his experience was of driving trains prior to this, as far as I can see, he was employed in the Mint. So (laughs) I don't know how much actual practice he'd had doing it at the controls. Quite a bold thing to do, really, isn't it? As I say, quite a hefty charge, I think, is how he describes it. I hope you have enjoyed listening to this episode. It was one uh, I've enjoyed doing. If you do want to leave some feedback about the podcast, as I mentioned before, there is the X page, formerly Twitter, which is Scott of the Historic at 3G Grand Tour. You can leave any comments you like there, hopefully positive. And there's also the Facebook page, which is at Grand Tour with my great-great-granddad. So that is it for this episode. If you have been, thanks for listening.